You're listening to BAM! Political Talk with Bob, Albert, and Matt. I'm your host, Matt Brown. I'm here with my friends, Albert. Say hi, Albert. Hello. And Bob. Say hi, Bob. What's up, everybody? They are today's prognosticators. Today, we're going to be talking about what the future will look like uh, post-COVID. We're going to be talking about what it'll look like for various industries weeks out and months out, years out, a millennia out. Probably not a millennia. (laughs) But we're going to see how industries are going to look in the near future. We have Albert, uh, who's going to be talking about... What are you going to be talking about? Hotels. Hotels. Bob, what are you planning on talking about today? I'm going to be talking about a little bit about mass transit. Okay. And I'm going to be talking about the healthcare system, what it looks like now, what it's, uh, what the trends are looking like, and where it's going. Bob, why don't you lead off for us? How do you think that uh, sure. transit is looking now? Where is it going to be a few months out? And where is it going ultimately in the next few years? Right. So um, many, many... Um, Big cities in the United States and around the world, of course, have been pushing to get cars off the road, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and to encourage mass transit. A lot of companies, including mine, are offering a subsidy where they will pay for all of or part of your commuting costs, provided that the money goes towards mass transit through what's called FSA accounts, which is federal law that allows you to receive a certain amount of tax-free compensation from your employer that goes into a special account that can only be used on certain things. So such as um, transit in this case, um, for me, I can only use it to purchase train passes, to take a shared Uber ride. It can't be like a normal Uber or Lyft ride. It must be a shared ride and only to and from work. It's heavily audited. And a lot of people, just even if their companies don't pay for it, either use it as their only option prior to the pandemic to get to work, or they used it um, because they felt that they didn't want to drive for whatever reason, environmental or personal. So at this point, we were in a spot where many um, heads of state governments and city government wanted to increase funding for mass transit, encourage more people to take it. A lot of people already were taking it, especially in New York City, which very, very, very likely contributed to them being much more hard hit than other areas around the country that don't necessarily have a massive mass transit system such as Los Angeles, which was hit relatively similar populations, but was hit a lot lighter by the coronavirus. And I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? You put a lot of people into a small confined space, you get into a rush hour train in Boston or New York, it's going to be packed with people, especially the afternoon trains in Boston. Oh my word, you can't even move, never mind find a seat in the on that train. So um, very, very efficient mode of getting people around if it's available and if it's cheap enough, especially. But it's obviously not conducive for spreading the coronavirus. So right now in Boston, they've reduced um, they've reduced capacity on a lot of trains. They have decided that they're going to clean them nightly. New York, I think, was, in my personal opinion, a little late to the party um, in doing the nightly cleanings that they're doing now. And I actually just read an article on ABC saying they're now piloting ultraviolet light to um, remove coronavirus from surfaces. But that still doesn't solve the problem of the main way coronavirus is spread, which is through respiratory droplets um, within six feet or less of somebody else. Um, the 
further you are away, the less uh, likely it is. But mass transit is not a place conducive to social distancing. So my personal story, with about a week to go with all of this being on the horizon and seeing that shit was probably going to hit the fan soon, I um, decided myself that I was going to stop taking mass transit um, after the weekend of March 5th, 6th-ish. So we went back to work for one full week after that, and then we were locked down at home and been working from home ever since. And I think that a lot of people are going to, before there's a vaccine, especially, and definitely before there's a treatment, are likely, if they have the option, to not take mass transit in the immediate term. People are going to be less likely to want to get on a train if they can drive, especially with traffic being down and high traffic and parking if they need to go somewhere in a, into a city is less in demand right now. So I think that right now and likely for, let's say, the next year to two to three before the population is widely vaccinated, just you know, making some best guesses as to when a vaccine or a good treatment might be available. And even after there is one, say we have one in September, October, I really think that people are going to be more averse to taking mass transit than they were before. Um, I think that with the threat of this virus, it's going to take a while to recede from the back of people's memory. So in a few in a few years, even if there's no threat of coronavirus, it might be hard to get people back on the train because you might hear in the news about a bad flu season and if you hear about a bad flu season in 2016 versus hearing about a bad flu season in 2021, your previous um, exposure to the coronavirus pandemic might make you more averse to taking public transit. So I do think that within 10 years or so of business as usual, perhaps a little less, people will be back to thinking about mass transit in the same way they did before the pandemic. But I think that there's going to be a rocky road ahead in the next five to 10 years for major cities that are looking to expand their mass transit options. Especially if ridership is down, it's going to be far less likely for them to approve expansion projects because the return on that taxpayer investment in the moderate term is going to be much lower than it otherwise would. Um, and I think people in general are going to be more risk averse when it comes to viruses spreading and catching viruses. Um, I know that the MBTA in the Boston area, um, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but they just issued um, an ordinance that they will not let you on subway cars or commuter rails if you're not wearing a face mask. I don't expect that to end anytime soon. So I think it's a going to be a rocky road ahead in the next few years. I think people are going to be choosing cars and private modes of transit um, besides mass transit and even Uber and Lyft. And Uber and Lyft are already struggling. So I could see the ride sharing industry be coming under even more pressure than they already were. So I think in the moderate term, people are going to be sticking to the good old fashioned automobile and are likely not going to be using mass transit as much. Yeah, I I have to say I think I agree with you on that. Um, I assume that there's going to be with with all the telecommuting that's happening right now, there's going to be a lot fewer cars on the road, which makes it so that the cars that are on the road have a much better uh, commute. It's a lot easier for them to get where they need to go. I don't know if you've been on ninety five recently at rush hour time, but it's it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, so I, I seriously doubt that there are going to be these expansions in mass transit, uh, like you said. And I think that it's actually going to be a pretty palatable uh, thing to just be using a car in the near future. 
Um, and I also think that we're going to see bicycles uh, hanging around for a yeah. while now. Um, I think I've seen so many bikes out lately, far more than I, I think I've seen in the past. Um, and I suspect that as people have discovered that this is a viable means of transit, there's a good chance they'll end up sticking to it. I, I think you're right that there, are, in the long term, there's going to be a drop-off in these alternate alternate behaviors. Um, at least maybe people switching eventually from bikes back to mass transit. Um, but there are some changes that I think are going to stick, like more telecommuting happening, um, leading to better yeah. commutes for other people. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about telecommuting as well, because if fewer people, if telecommuting becomes semi-permanent, which I think it will be now that managers are realizing that it's, you know, their employees are productive working from home and it's been largely successful with some exceptions, I think, yeah, you might see more flexible work from home policies, fewer cars on the road and hence fewer trains on the road, uh, on the rails rather. But I do feel like it's going to be an uphill battle in trying to, you know, kill the car or discourage car use, which I think um, in terms of like an internal combustion engine, private automobile doesn't get much more inefficient than that as a mode of, of transit per, you know, ton of carbon expended, if you will. So I sort of fear that it's going to become more difficult than it otherwise would have been in the long term, even though emissions are going to be down in 2020. What do you guys think about where uh, the airlines are going to be heading in, in the next year or the next few years? Um, that's another sort of mode of mass transit that has been significantly impacted. I think I heard something like 90% of flights have been, uh, have been canceled uh, in the past few months. It's, it's been massively impacted. Uh, do you think that's going to be rebounding? I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to jump in here. So, I mean, I think... I think uh just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I wonder, for example, so obviously flight uh, volume has gone way down, but, you know, people are starting to go back. I wonder how much of this is right a par- parallel to after 9-11, right, where nobody, everyone was afraid to fly. Then suddenly, you know, different um, security measures were put in. People got a sense of confidence again, and then things became a, a new normal, right? And you went from... You could pretty much just walk through, walk into security with, you know, weapons to, you know, additional security, right? And then does that become uh, potentially, you know, the the temperature checks? Does that become some sort of mandatory quarantine or testing before your flight? Uh, You know, something like that. But I just, I, I guess I wouldn't discount the people's ability either to forget. And I'm, of course, talking like, one, two, three. I'm more more um, challenging that whole sort of things will change even ten years out. But I just wonder how how willing are people are able to to forget about certain things and adapt to a, a new normal and get comfortable. And also, I wonder also how many people don't have a choice, right? Yeah. Less about air travel, but you know, we talk oh. about uh, teleworking. You know, that's a lot of people are. I'm I'm personally very fortunate to be able to do that, but a lot of people are not. A lot of people are, might buy a car, but a lot of people are low income and are not able to. So I wonder how much of that by necessity is still going to lead. And that, that's what I think is the most sort of interesting and also scary is where you've got a large number of people. And maybe New York City is a little unique where I live that really don't have a choice. How, how, how would they get to work? I mean, I don't own a car. I work in another borough. I don't know how I would get to work other than uh, taking the train. Yeah, no, totally. And New York is a 
different, definitely a different animal than Boston. Um, there's way more parking in Boston. It's a bit more spread out. But um, I totally understand that there are going to be um, people who, by necessity, are going to need to take the train. I'm more thinking about, like, in terms of where do we see mass transit going before the pandemic? And the conversation, at least in Boston, has been it should replace the car. We should get commuter rail service everywhere. We should reduce and move away from the zoning fares where you pay more the further you live away from Boston and you subsidize people that might live in local income areas that might want to take the train that are far away like Brockton or New Bedford or Fall River, etc. So I think those sorts of projects to encourage more people to take the, the mass transit are going to be severely impeded. But there's definitely going to be a sustainable demand there. And I do agree with you that people are going to forget. I think we might disagree on like the time frame. I sort of think it'll be more of a longer term thing for people, um, maybe like on the order of five to 10 years, but could very well be wrong. I mean, people, especially if a vaccine comes out very quickly and and pe people are going to remember this and be like, oh, well, you know, it was bad, but it was only bad for a few months and it could have been a lot worse. But if this thing drags on for another year, year and a half, there's going to be a lot of strife and it's really going to be on the minds of people for a very long time. Yeah, I'm wondering how much of uh, the demand for flights is coming from individuals needing to travel places for business versus for, you know, visiting family members versus just travel to visit a location for vacation. Uh, because if a, if a large portion of it is to see family or to uh, accomplish some work tasks, I could see that dropping off significantly even a, a long distance out just because we're going to be seeing telecommuting becoming more prevalent. Like this, this has demonstrated that telecommuting is, I believe, effective, at least from what I've seen so far. I don't know how you guys are are seeing it go down at your offices. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and, and I think that's one of the still sort of to be determined things, right? That's going to, you know, to talk about um, uh, lodging and hotels and whatnot later on. But, you know, for example, I was reading an interesting piece, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that was talking about just the, the concept of video chat and how we're doing it now and how sometimes you have audio not syncing up. Sure. That also leads to people... Um, because there's a lag, people respond later. Mm -hmm. And so even if I respond, yes, but on a, like even milliseconds later than I normally would in a face-to-face -face conversation, you perceive that inherently as being less trustful, less mm -hmm. trustworthy. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, that's one of the things I worry, I wonder is like, you know, if you're, if you're doing a sales pitch for a big piece of business and this technology has been around for a long time, you know, yeah. I wonder, you know, are people really going to switch like, like that, and potentially some some things will will change, um, but I, I think for a lot of it, uh, it's still to to be determined. And I can definitely see a world where things get normalized, and it's not unusual that you know uh, a flight takes twice as long to board and and disembark. Everyone wears a mask. You raise your hand to go to the bathroom, and you're like, oh yeah, of course, of course, it's like that. Just like uh, you know. People used to smoke on planes, and now people, oh, remember when people used to be crowded with no masks, and they would jostle each other, and, and what, you know, that, I just, I just wonder how something uh, really unusual seeming today could become very normal to facilitate things that people might also realize, wow, 
that in-person uh, nature actually did add a lot of value or I did miss out on something because we were remote. Yeah. What do you guys think about the use of disinfectants nightly on mass transit? Um, from what I've seen so far, there's very little evidence of actual transmission from individual to individual via surfaces. Um, that I'm not that I'm not sure about, right? I think that there's been a lot of research that says that it can last on different surfaces for. I've seen that you know, I've seen that part. I've seen a number of different studies that have shown it can linger on a surface for something like up to 72 hours. Um, that's the extent I've seen, though. I know that the CDC is saying that um, you might as well disinfect things uh, because what we know about other coronaviruses is that other ones can be transmitted that way. Uh, but there still haven't been any proven cases of transmission uh, with with COVID so far. So it seems like maybe that's just yeah. a massive waste of resources. I mean, I don't know how easy it is to prove mode. So, like, say I got it, right? So <laughs> Exactly, I, exactly. Right? Like, I, I'm doing everything right. You know, I did see I did see family last weekend, but we were all 10 feet apart, masks, all everybody wearing a mask. Even the Fox News dads that were there were wearing masks. Like, <laughs> so, so, um, so, um, my point is, is that we're doing everything right. Like, if I got, if I come down with symptoms in a few days, I'll be like, okay, well, it's probably there. You know, highest risk. I was around, you know, maybe ten other people, but we were all ten feet apart, sure. um, socially distancing, everybody with masks on. But I could have got it on a run or I could have, you know, touched something outside and touched my face, you know, without all this contact going on. And even when there is contact, like it's it's really hard to pinpoint when that infection occurred. I think it is probably possible. It's you need to have an infectious amount of the virus. Like if there's one COVID-19 particle floating around in my house, it's probably not going to infect myself or my wife but if what do we need do we need a hundred particles a thousand a million um i'm not i'm not a, an epidemiologist here but i do know that you do need that viral load matters and the body can very easily destroy one particle but if you get enough to, there has to be a critical amount to that would get a foothold in your body in order to start replicating faster than your immune system could deal with it initially and cause an infection. So I think it's going to be really hard. I think it's worth doing the disinfecting that they're doing, but people need to realize it does seem far more common to catch it from respiratory droplets. Yeah. I, I think one of the most interesting things, I mean, Matt, you're, you're focused uh, as always kind of on the, the facts or what's true. And I, and I think in this case, Everything we're talking about, right, is consumer behavior, and consumer behavior is driven a lot by perception, right? So if somebody perceives touching surfaces, right, to be more dangerous than potentially standing next to somebody with a mask, that could be what determines whether air travel is safe or not, right? I mean, safe in, in air quotes, meaning perceived to be safe. Sure. Or if someone's like, yeah, well, I'm sitting down, but I've got Bob on my left with a mask and, and Matt on my right. And I'm gonna, and I'll, I'm, I'm good to go. That's just I'm reminded to, of to keep in TSA mind. deciding to uh, have people remove their shoes after the shoe bomber incident. <laughs> so it was, who knows whether that would ever happen again? It was probably solely, solely, so that people would feel a little <laughs> <Nice. more> comfortable. <laughs> but I mean, temperature uh, checks. Things. 
Temperature checks, even though I think they only go so far, especially with a virus that spreads asymptomatically, um, I think temperature checks might have a good shot at becoming the norm. Um, I think that mask wearing certainly could potentially become the norm. And you have to make people feel comfortable flying, as you were saying, Albert. And I'm re I, I started skimming some articles uh, while you guys were talking about air travel statistics. And apparently only 12% of air travelers are um, business travelers, although oh, wow. they represent up. Yeah, I was very surprised How that as well. According to Investopedia, which is the source that I'm looking at right now, it accounts for 12% of airlines' passengers, but they're twice as profitable because they buy the mm -hmm. cards and the yeah. banks get mm -hmm. paid mm -hmm. by the card issuer for the cards and, and all that jazz. So, um, Sure. The company some... can drop extra money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, interesting interesting to read about. I, I, was, uh, I assumed it would at least be 40% because you always hear, like everybody always has that friend that – you go on a trip with them and they spend all their airline points and you pay them like 50 bucks and you get first class or whatever it is. So <laughs> I don't have um, that friend. Yeah. Well, you get to find some that, more friends, that, that friend is Bob. He just never <laughs> invited you. Oh no, I don't travel. This is a friend of mine, but yeah, I can hook you up with my buddy. He, he might sell you some points, but it's, yeah, that's great. Um, it's great to have friends that are in sales. Um, but yeah, so I do see a lot of that changing. Like, the, the three friends that I know that are in sales, are, I ask them when do you think the next time they're going to travel is, and they're like, we have no idea. Everything's remote right now and it's working, but, you know, there's something to be said about you go there, you show interest, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. you go out, you, you treat the potential clients to a nice meal and some drinks. Like, that's a big part of the sales process that, you know, maybe it will change, but I kind of agree with you, Albert. I think we'll go back to that soon after we have a vaccine. Yeah, I think I think uh, it just sort of depends on the type of business travel. Uh, I think with sales, it's super important to be in person with the uh, with the other party in order to sort of develop a relationship with them. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of uh, prior work that I had done where I would fly to another state and you know do technical work for a company for for a few days. Uh, that definitely doesn't need to be something that's happening frequently. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of consulting positions could probably happen remotely. Uh, so so I think it really depends on the specific uh, type of business that you're performing. Um, yeah. What do you guys think about uh, where Uber and Lyft are going for for one <laughs> last facet one last facet of the uh, mass transit industry? I don't think Bob's going to be using his uh, transit card on uh, Uber Pool anytime soon. No. I mean, yeah, it has a it has a big big impact on this whole concept of the the sharing economy and and even just taking a a single ride. You know, I think I think what's so fascinating to me about the, and and you kind of I'm trying to like compartmentalize, right? Where you got to think of like taking the train is like a point A to point B type of thing, and you can control to some extent, but not all. Who, what you touch, who you're exposed to, right? I was on the trains before it shut down, you know, and it was like a, it was like a sort of like a, a horror movie, you know, you look left, <laughs> you run, you go right. I mean, it, it was the most stressful thing ever, right? Whereas being in a, in an Uber or a Lyft, you're kind of like picking one person, right? You're with yeah. one guy, but like, is he or she a good person? And like, are they treating that, you know, suddenly you can't choose 
So I think that that loss of choice is, and, and even if people aren't in control, I think people are going to want to feel like they're in control. And I think that's something that you just cannot get. Forget about a, an Uber pool, but even just with being in that in that vehicle. So I, I think it's going to be uh, very, very tough for them in the future. Agreed. The other thing is, I think air travel, and maybe this is a nice a nice lead to the next topic on hotels, right? Because you could say, well, what's going to happen to hotels? But who, really, who cares if people are not comfortable flying, if people are not comfortable renting a car? So I think, I think it's uh, important not to think of these things in isolation and also to think about how many steps there are in the journey. You know, my, my wife and I were thinking about potentially renting a car and going for a hike upstate this weekend or next or something, but how many steps does that involve and how do you touch and what happens if you know, six hours in, you got to go to the bathroom. Do you go to like, what if you're, you know, you need food? What do you need to pack? There's just so many hidden logistics that I think a lot of people, myself included, haven't, haven't thought of. And I think that's where you kind of have to get comfortable with every single uh, link in the chain. Because if you're not comfortable with the least, you know, the most, the quote unquote dangerous part, if using a public restroom is really what freaks you out, then you might not be able to do anything on that on that day trip just because there's that one part that you're not comfortable with. And I think that's what might slow things down. I was reading an article about uh, how RVs are predicted to be the, the main way to take a vacation this summer. Um, and I, I have been mulling that over a, bit, a little bit. And I think that resolves a number of your issues that you just mentioned. Uh, like if you got that uh, toilet right there on the thing, you don't really need to stop for anything. <laughs> I mean, gas is the one thing you... I mean, gas is the one thing you need to worry about. Uh, you can pack enough. You can always empty the uh, tank into your uh, neighbor's sewer, like in Christmas Vacation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I uh, I went up to the White Mountains this past weekend, and I highly recommend trying to get out for something like that. It was only a two-hour drive for me, and I've already got a car, which helps. Did you get stopped at the New Hampshire border? No. Wow, hmm. that's great. Um, <laughs> there was there were two tolls that I had to pay. That's probably why they didn't stop you. They just wanted that toll money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, making all that money, that extra, it was $2. That is not a lot of money. And there were not very many cars on the road. Um, but yeah, my, my worry was stopping for gas and stopping for those tolls. And everything besides that was not a problem. Um, I mean, there's the bathroom situation, which for, for guys isn't too big of a deal if you're up in nature. Uh, women, too, depending on whether they've hiked the Appalachian Trail or not. Um, Sounds yeah, like a topic for another episode. Yeah, maybe we'll delve into that later. Um, have you guys seen any uh, advertisements on Facebook or elsewhere about you know five hundred dollars stays in Cancun or oh you know yeah? Have you? I've I've been seeing a bunch of those lately. Uh, no. Just different specials advertisements. Please, please, please come visit. Some of them yeah. for immediately. Some of them for you know. Uh, you can you can act on this at any point you want in the next eighteen months. Uh, I think as a way for them to put together some money right now, and I'm personally not willing to do that just because who knows if that yeah. place is going to be around eighteen months from now. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's like roulette. Like you're playing roulette to see like okay if if this place doesn't fold and if I feel comfortable traveling by then or if I'm even mm -hmm. allowed to travel by then. 
mm-hmm. then cool. Otherwise, you lose $400 or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm definitely not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I'd rather pay full price for a vacation when I'm ready. And I, and I think that's a, that's a great example of, you know, some of the challenges that a lot of industries are going to face, right? Where there's kind of like different levels of where people are going to be willing to get more comfortable. And, you know, if, if the starting point is being comfortable visiting your parents or your family <laughs> in a socially distanced manner, and we're, what, you know, two and a half months into, into this, uh, and then you're, it's only baby steps up from there, I think, I think it's, it's going to be difficult in the short term. I think really the question is, is in the long term or medium to long term, meaning 12 to 24 months out. And if, 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 if you're comfortable that most people around you either have immunity, have a, have you, you were able to receive a, a vaccine or there's some sort of uh, treatment that you know that it's not really any longer a life threatening thing. I think only then will people really be comfortable to take the types of risks like, Oh, a $200 vacation in Cancun. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. Like, I think at a certain point, people are not willing to risk their, their health and their lives for 50 to even 85% off anything. Yeah, I think one thing we've been assuming this whole time is that the general individual in our population accepts that these are dangerous things, that it's dangerous to be within six feet of another person, etc. right now. And listening to that conspiracy uh, podcast, 538 podcast the other day, it seems like there are actually quite a few people who don't think it's as dangerous as, as we're talking about it, Yeah, as, as we believe it to be. Yeah. So maybe those individuals would still be willing to hop into these offers, right? Or go on this vacation, go to this hotel. I guess I just don't know what percent that is. Well, and I think that's, it's a good point, Matt. And that's the question of how do you get into sort of situations where the, the situation is both regional and then also do you have waves? So if everyone feels comfortable, but folks are potentially too comfortable in going out, well, then if then they all get it or then it creates it so that it's back to a level where it's a, it's a, it's, it's an issue and then other people around them become less comfortable. So everything's, everything's related and, and dynamic. That's why I think in the in the interim, it's very difficult to to make any pre- any prediction, and you almost have to look at it state by state. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Albert. What what would make you comfortable going on a vacation like this to Cancun or wherever you might go instead, uh, and staying at a hotel, you know, for a week or two weeks? What needs to be in place for you to feel comfortable enough to do something like that? Yeah, I mean, for for me, so like, I mean, like, let's, let's, let's be honest, right? It's very easy to forget that there's a lot of things that we do in our day-to-day life that is dangerous, right? Just driving a car on a highway has some level of, of danger. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. If you don't get a flu shot, you have asthma and you're over 65 and you're just out and about on a subway car, you could get a flu, the flu and that could be very dangerous for you. Um, I, I think, I think for me, it would, it would almost have to, it would have to, the risk would have to be at or less than kind of your normal risk of visiting kind of like what I would call like an exciting, unusual destination, if that makes sense. Okay. Kind of like uh, visiting like Buenos Aires or, uh, you know, Morocco or so- something like that where, you know, you know that something could happen. It's very, very unlikely. 
Um, and that's, that's sort of the level of, I mean, and for me, I'm more conservative in, in, on, on those types of things. I, I, I would much rather wait and be able to enjoy more in the future. Like I would much be willing to forget sooner and wait until that risk is lower than to rush to save some, some amount of money that won't do me much good if I'm uh, not in a good situation or uh, put those I, I love and care about in danger. My understanding is that you and I and others are not at incredible risk. I mean, I'm at an elevator risk because I have asthma um, and I'm a little, a little overweight, perhaps. Um, but I still don't think the risk is that high. I guess for me, my larger worry is I want to be able to see family members and stuff. Uh, I want to be mm-hmm. able to see family who are at higher risk. So I'm trying yeah. to, you know preserve myself in that way uh i don't think that i would end up dying from it uh it's it's more about being able to see family but at the same time i'm not actually even seeing family right now i don't think it's too much high of a risk than um other things i do today today driving in a car um being overweight but you're thinking about it in such a different way right and i think that's the thing that's also very real here where the actual like you know as you're a mathematician right so you you can you you might think of things in terms of probability or in terms of numbers but i don't think that's how people approach things and so yes the percentage might be the same as insert mundane thing that you do every day potentially but the fact that it's in the news the fact that you're you understand it so well you've heard about it might make you much more sensitive to that like you know in my personal example is you know my wife and I will go for a walk sometime and I have to remind myself that I'm probably more likely to get hit by a car jaywalking <laughs> than getting coronavirus on my walk, even though I'm laser focused yeah, on yeah. Uh, yeah. preventing getting coronavirus. Meanwhile, like I can almost cross the street without looking both ways. Those are the types <laughs> of sort of uh, things. But it, 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 so that's, again, back to that perception versus reality concept I was talking sure. about before. Bob, yeah. what about you? I know that you're interested in uh, going to Las Vegas occasionally. Uh, <laughs> when when do you yeah. think you'd feel comfortable going back there? Oh boy! So, um, like like Albert mentioned, you know, I'm I'm a mathematician also, and um, so I'm trying to think about I'm trying to think about my level of personal risk. So it's like, okay, what what good things do I have going for me? All right, I live in a relatively suburban area. Cool. It's not it's not an infection pit like Boston is right now. That's good. Yeah. Um, reduces the overall rate. Although there are a lot of cases in my county, and I think the inf- we have about two or three hundred people in my town that are infected out of a population of about thirty thousand. So not like it's not here, but it's it's pretty manageable. People to spread out. Um, I am young. I'm thirty one years old. I just turned thirty one, and um, the vast, vast, vast majority of deaths are happening in much older people. I think. Half of the deaths are happening in people over 75, I think, last time I checked. Could be wrong there. But um, it de- definitely sees highly stratified towards age. I am worried about myself in a couple of in a couple of ways. I have very, very, very light asthma. It's well controlled. Haven't had to use my rescue inhaler in probably a year, maybe. Um, 
I have uh, hypertension on one medication for that or high blood pressure, if those don't know the, the regular term. Haven't had a high blood pressure reading in probably about five months. Uh, and I'm obese. And I've been working on that. I've lost weight um, and my blood pressure has come way down and my asthma is pretty much gone. So I feel good. Like I feel physically great and I feel like I'm in a good spot to beat it, you, you know, despite the extra weight around my chest and despite the asthma, I feel like I'm not going to die from it, but I am af still afraid of it. And it's like, you know, if, if, you know, by my age group, if I was in tip top shape, maybe I would have a 0.05% chance of passing from this, but I've sort of stratified my risk as anywhere from 0.1 to like 2%. If I get it, I would have that chance of not making it. So I mean, I don't, if it's towards that higher end, I don't want to screw around with it. So I'm, I'm very, very cognizant mm -hmm. of where I am, how I would get it. And, but like you guys said, you know, I might be at a little bit more higher risk than you guys, you know, in the total aggregate average, but I'm far, far more worried about passing it to other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm personally far more worried about my parents' health than, uh, than my own. With yeah. Those. That's an interesting so, idea that yeah, one so way we can lower that chance is to just work on your own health. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. that's a way to get to a point where you can go back to Vegas. Yeah. Oh yeah. So to answer your question, when will I feel comfortable? There has to be a good treatment if I knew. So right now it's something like, you know, depending on what study you look at anywhere from like five to 20 percent of cases end up resulting in at least a visit to the hospital and from there about a third of those patients get admitted so if you feel sick enough to go to the hospital a third of those patients will get admitted and once you're in the hospital the chances of you beating it fall drastically so the fact that these symptoms are so polarizing is what makes it scary so to me what would make me feel comfortable there doesn't necessarily have to be a vaccine but if there's a if there is a pill that you can take that will act as an antiviral similar to how Tamiflu acts as an early intervention against the flu if there's something that can be taken within the first say 4 to 5 days of symptoms like hydrochloroquine? Then I would... S oh, God. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, well, the hydroxychloroquine, we could have a whole episode on that because oh, I've followed a lot of their studies and yeah, and, and how bad a lot of those studies are that, that are being done um, and how politicized it is in the United States. But something I'm personally excited about is famatidine, which is, I don't know if you guys have seen this, it's a cheap heartburn medication. There was a computer algorithm that a company called Northwell ran a while back to try to identify what drugs do we have on the market that could potentially have an antiviral effect. Oh, famotidine. I've been taking that before. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, famotidine. Yeah, I might, I might be. Uh, yeah, so it's a cheap heartburn medication. And a controlled, it's not a clinical trial, which are underway now for this. The type of trial, it's a, re a retrospective trial. What that okay. is, is you look at, say you got 4,000 patients in the hospital. This study took 5% of them. So it ended up being, I think, 200 patients out of that 4,000 or so. And they gave half of them a placebo and half of them uh, famatidine. And they just um, looked at, no, I'm sorry. They, they gave them all famatidine and then looked at how they compared to the group as a whole. So you have a group of hospitalized patients, you take a 5% representative sample of that group of patients, and then you compare the two. So there's no there's no placebo, but 
that one group is getting the drug and then you look at how they fared against the group as a whole and the death rate was cut by 71 percent now wow we that's that's exciting but it's still a retrospective trial so it's not a double blind clinical trial so we still i don't want us to get too excited about it but it personally excited me because that is very statistically significant it's very likely that this drug at least to me as a layperson and somebody who's versed in statistics, is probably doing something given that sample size and um, comparing those two cohorts to each other. So we have clinical trials coming out, and I'm personally pretty excited about this because it's a cheap heartburn medication. It's even cheaper than Prilosec, which uses a different active ingredient. So if that turns out to be... um, if that turns out to be an effective treatment, we could nationalize the production of it. We could get mass amounts out to people. Right now, a bottle of it costs like 10 20 bucks, I think, depending on mm-hmm. how many you get. Heartburn medication isn't the cheapest, but it's certainly not very cost prohibitive. So something like that, a cheap, easily accessible pill that could be available that could save, say, 70% of people from going to the hospital. That would be what it would take for me to go to Vegas. Okay. Okay. And that, that, I could see that being a few years down the line. I think a treatment is months and not years, but it depends on how good that treatment is. If it's a crappy treatment, I'm probably not going anywhere. Like if fomatidine helps marginally, then I'm not going to Vegas. I guess my understanding is that these sort of approvals from FDA, FDA normally take far longer than a couple months to, to, to get all the way through to market. That's true, but this is an already approved drug. So the FDA would probably give emergency use authorization for COVID-19 and then, you know, you could just get the drug. It's, they, it's not like they can stop people from buying it. It's already an approved heartburn medication. Sure. Um, I think this is a good transition into our last topic of the night. Um, I want to talk about how healthcare is changing, uh, how it's changed in the past couple of months, where it's going to be going in the near future and the long term. Um, I think one thing that we've seen is that there is a significant amount of flexibility that the government is having to give in a variety of different respects to get this uh, emergency uh, controlled in one way, allowing drugs to get swifter approval than they would normally get, uh, getting them into clinical trials more, uh, quicker than normal. Um, we see CMS uh, being a little more flexible with what can be covered. Um, I'm seeing telemedicine becoming uh, more prevalent and CMS is allowing that to get covered by Medicare. What uh, is CMS? Oh, CMS. I'm sorry. Uh, CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, they, they're they the governmental organization that uh, controls Medicare and ends up having a lot of say in the healthcare world because uh, so much of funding for hospitals uh, comes from Medicare and Medicaid. So they've started uh, paying full for telehealth, uh, which allows more patients to use that rather than having to go in to see their doctor. Um, and that's, that's sort of um, accelerating something that we've already been seeing for a little while now, this increase in telehealth um, that has suddenly become huge in the past few months. I was reading a statistic earlier that said that... Uh, uh, non-urgent care telehealth is up 4,325% at NYU Langone Health uh, between March 12th and March 2nd and April 14th. So just oh. massive, massive expansions. Of course, that, that 
could go that could be from one patient to four thousand three hundred and forty five <laughs> patients you know <laughs> that's the the problem with percentages right um but there we're, we're seeing this huge increase in telehealth right now that cms is thankfully uh helping make happen and my hope is that that continues into the future um again it sort of comes down to are people going to return to their old habits uh and I think, uh, in a certain sense, in a, to a certain extent, they are. It's going to be it's similar to the the business travel thing, right? Where you sort of look at the different types of people doing this, um, depending on the specific type of checkup that's being done. You may be able to do it via telehealth. For instance, I, Bob, am also a sufferer of hypertension. I've got high blood pressure, and I got a call mm. this morning from my doctor saying, "Hey, can we reschedule for next week?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And they said, "It's telehealth. Is that okay?" And I said, well, wait a second. This is a blood pressure checkup. Uh, how, how are we going to do a blood yeah. pressure checkup via telehealth? And they said, oh, oh, yeah. Do, yeah. Right. Do you have a cuff? Do well, yeah. I mean, cuff? so I don't. Yeah. And and I think oh, that's okay. that's that would allow it to actually be uh, telehealth, right? Um, that's yeah. one of the versions of telehealth that we're seeing a lot of lately, that uh, there's more monitoring uh, of patients' vitals via the internet or, or you know, via them reporting via telephone. Um that allows you to avoid an uh, an inpa- uh, an outpatient visit. So, yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of changes happening, and it's sort of a question of how much of this will go back to quote unquote normal afterwards. And I think we're going to be discovering a lot of ways that we can cut costs by doing this stuff remotely. But there is still the need in the long run for people to go back in to see their doctor face to face. Uh, depending on the specific situation. Certainly your yearly checkup yeah. will have to be face-to-face. You're not going to have a medical-grade scale or a medical-grade blood pressure cuff either, so it, severe limitations already exist for telehealth, even though you might be able to do some of it at home. So I definitely agree. I think telehealth might become more prevalent, uh, maybe during flu season for like sick visits. It could be a requirement for certain doctor's offices, but... I think people are definitely going to be going back to see the doctor pretty quickly once this is passed. I mean, I, I think I think what you guys both are saying is very is very interesting, and I think Matt, you know, tele the telehealth is one aspect that I think is going to change. I think there is a conversation that could be had that the entire business model of the American healthcare system is potentially uh, up for grabs. Right? I mean, this whole pay fee-for-service model is not working out very well uh, when you cannot do elective surgeries. And like Bob, you said, there are just inherent limitations to uh, it's hard, hard to, to, to fix somebody remotely uh, if they need to, if you need to be in touch with them. Uh, and, you know, and it's a question of, you know, is now the time where there's a political willpower to, to change some of that? Not necessarily a quote-unquote Medicare for all or anything like that, but more for like you know, going to a more Scandinavian model or do you somehow, you know, pay these hospitals based on outcomes more? Are you, do you pay them kind of a, a set amount based on the number of patients um, that they see? Can you see? talk a little I bit mean, about the, uh, the Scandinavian model? Oh, I wish I knew more about the Scandinavian. I mean, the <laughs> Scandinavian model, I think, is much, and I think it's much more, and I'm speaking a little bit off the, the cuff, so forgive me, but this idea that, you know, everybody has coverage, but most importantly, you're not necessarily paying for something you do, right? So that's where you get these situations where you get folks, a small segment of the American 
public has excellent health insurance or uh, or something something like that, and then doctors and hospitals are incentivized to give them more tests, do more do more things to be able to charge more more money. And I wonder, you know, is this an opportunity to to change that? I mean, it's very it's very uh, politically sensitive, but you know, and maybe this is a topic for a a future podcast. But you know, you've got you've got a lot of especially on the Democratic side, a lot of pressure uh, to to dream big. In, in the moment, um, and you wonder if a crisis like this, that's pretty much the largest since we've had since the Great Depression, might generate the willpower to, to change things in, in a number of different areas. I think it's possible that we could see these sort of drastic changes. Um, my understanding is that a lot of hospitals are going under right now or in danger of going under because such a large source of their revenue was this fee-for-service model. Uh, where they are mm-hmm. taking a large amount of money from elective surgeries, from um, various types of scans, uh, from these patients with very good insurance. Um, mm-hmm. and suddenly, patients are staying the heck away from these hospitals, um, while at the same time, these hospitals are dealing with an influx of patients that are very costly, who are not able to pay very much for those for those costs that they're incurring. Um, so I think these hospitals are either going to have to find a way to shift their the the way their budget works drastically, or they're going to go under, or they're going to be bought up by bigger, bigger hospitals. Um, and I think if they're if they go under, there's going to be a vacuum in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and then the question is also, and just because I don't want people to to think I'm I'm crazy that there's going to be some American political kumbaya moment, but you know, <laughs> could there be some sort of bailout that happens, government bailout, and some Terms or conditions or things are, are are tied to it, right? So I think that's 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 kind of the, uh, the the interesting thing, and I think you could say that in a number of different areas where there's even and this is happening all over the world where you have a lot of different governments are taking stakes in in companies, you know, a lot of different things going on. The Federal Reserve is buying the you know the, the private debt of basically anyone who will sell it. You know, at a certain point, does does that drive and, and sort of change considering how much of a stake uh, society and ultimately American taxpayers have in uh, these different for-profit and non-profit businesses? I think one thing to keep in mind, main thing I'll say on this topic, is we can't forget that we still are incredibly, incredibly politically divided Donald Trump was elected. The election of Donald Trump is sort of like, in my opinion, like the peak of that division because not only was he a divisive candidate, but he also stoked the flames from the other side to add more division um, to in order to react to him. Uh, and we're really in an unprecedented politically divided time, in my opinion. So I think we can potentially get there, but... I think it's going to be less likely that we'll see major systemic change given um, we have President Trump and Mitch McConnell who blocks a lot in the Senate. It's going to be very, very difficult to get a ton done. If once we get on the other side of 2020, maybe things will look a little bit different depending on how things shape out. But um, I don't necessarily think... um, that those divisions will go away anytime soon, sadly. It's so frustrating because I think everyone can agree that our health system is very screwed up right now. 
yeah, uh, besides I mean, me, the CEOs of uh, hospitals. And yeah, and, companies. and right now I think a lot of the division is by loud minorities. You have the fringes yeah. of the left and the fringes of the right are both very, very, very loud. But, I mean, you take a poll of Republicans, and I think recently, I can't remember if it was by age cohort, but I thought a majority of Republicans supported at the very least, some form of increased government involvement in healthcare. I don't know if it wow. was single payer per se, but I'll have to dig up that poll for you because it, you know so you hear some polls sometimes that definitely seem way, way, way beyond like what the media is talking about and what the the talking heads that you hear and the the loud voices from largely <laughs> the far left and the far right. So it's very it's very interesting to sort of see those polls that kind of throw a wrench into that and be like, hey, it seems like most people are being reasonable about this, and yet we're talking really, really loudly about nonsense. Yeah. Um, at the same time we're seeing all these problems going on, we also have some incremental change that's been happening. Uh, Bob, you and I have been pretty close to this change, uh, getting away from the fee-for-service models. Um, mm -hmm. Albert, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a concept of ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations, which follow a value-based care model rather than a fee-for-service model. I've heard a little bit about that, that. Yeah, and I think I've talked to you a little bit about it too. Uh, the idea is that you have an organization that agrees to take on a certain number of patients that they are going to be sort of stewarding or shepherding, uh, and they are responsible for keeping those patients relatively healthy. And over time, they are going to be taking on more and more risk of uh, of the, the costs of those patients. At, at the start of the process of becoming an ACO, um, the government's paying a portion of the, 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 the risks associated with the patients, and the organization's paying a portion. And then slowly that ends up shifting over time as the organization gets better and better at caring for that, that collection of patients. Um, and the idea of this is to make it so that the organization has an incentive to be keeping the population healthy rather than having their incentive to be to perform as many procedures and services as possible. Um, it's a very exciting idea, and it's I'm we're still seeing whether it's going to end up being a success or not. Um, one change that CMS, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, implemented just the other day was making it so that uh, existing ACOs are not going to have their risk ratcheted up a notch this, this coming mm -hmm. year. They're going to be able to defer on that increase of the amount of risk they're taking on for their set of patients. So um, they're they're getting a little more leeway to to make this work right now because you know these hospitals are in so much danger right now, and it's important that this be a successful experiment. Interesting. I was just reading an article before this talking about the Mayo Clinic. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen what's been going on at the Mayo Clinic lately, but you can sort of take what we've been talking about right here and sort of extrapolate from that. Uh, the Mayo Clinic takes in a huge amount of its revenue from people coming in from overseas uh, and from people with very good insurance coming in and having a lovely hotel stay uh, with nice fine dining uh, restaurants around the place. And surprise, surprise, that's fallen apart in the past couple months. Um, their $11 billion that they take in, for, uh, take in a year has suddenly just, you know, hit the floor. Um, so they are trying to figure out how to navigate this and shift to a much more uh, Medicare, Medicaid-based clientele. 
and taking in more service from people in the the near uh, in the area around um but who knows how they're gonna there's a good chance they're not going to be able to fund so many of their high cost specialists with that sort of stuff so it's sort of a question of can they last long enough on their funds in order to get back to a point where people feel comfortable going to visit them again mm-hmm. um, and i think that's a common problem across the board right now that you know so many of these companies are just wondering can i survive on funds and loans to get to a point where i could keep going once this is all done right and I, and i think the mayo clinic that is a really excellent example of maybe a, a large uh, stakeholder, but you know you have pediatricians that own their own practice, right? How how are they doing any business? You have dentists. You you've got all sorts of folks. And I think that's still you know there's yeah. there's a lot of both in health insurance, healthcare, and just in general. There's a lot of business models that just do not work <laughs> unless you have something close to normal. And I think that is going to be one of the trickiest things and why I think this, uh, unfortunately, this economic recovery is going to be very slow. I think on that note, uh, it might be about time to wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everyone, to BAM, Political Talk with Bob, Albert, and Matt. I'm your host, Matt Brown. Thanks, Albert. Thank you. And thanks, Bob. Thank you. Have a good week, everyone.